0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. A mentor of mine once said that he could tell on a Sunday morning, just by looking at the countenance of the wives walking through the hallways, which husbands were doing a good job. (laughs) There are some exceptions. You may go through an intense period of time. Personalities differ. so. But there's something to that. It's not a foolproof test, but there's something to that test. If a husband in a home is providing a sort of secure environment, a secure love to his wife, he might not be able to dampen the difficult circumstances of life. That's just life. But to provide an environment where there is a secure love, it does have a rather remarkable influence on every member of the home, including of course, the wife. It's one of the reasons that the recent, although not that recent, American trend away from marriage is unfortunate. It's a sad trend that's happening. People are delaying marriage or just partnering together without marriage. But what you miss there is, God designed marriage to be a covenant between one man and one woman specifically to provide this kind of secure love that allows for flourishing. The vows that are made in a wedding, from the man to the wife, even though they're taken more lightly today, they're real vows. They're real promises that are made, till death do we part, and they're significant in providing the secure love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his letters written from a Nazi prison, said to a friend, quote, it is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. In a healthy marriage, you are committing in to providing this environment of safety, not circumstantial, but in the love, you know that your husband loves you, you love your husband. And the consequence is a calm inner reassurance in the person who is loved. Jesus, when he wanted to provide this kind of calm inner assurance to his disciples here on earth, in the midst of all the ups and downs of circumstance, said, quote, your father knows what you need. Why say that? He's your father, he loves you, and he knows the needs that you have. And if you believe that, you are then in an environment of secure love, and that changes the way you think about life. It lessens anxieties, increases confidence and joy. He is the best of all husbands to his people, his bride. This is why the question of Christian assurance is so important. Can you know for sure that you belong to Christ and will one day inhabit paradise with Him forever and ever. Some people would say that if you say yes, you are being presumptuous, that you can't really know until you're there. We deny that. We say that, no, you can be sure even now that you belong to Christ. Some would say, well, no one can snatch you out of Christ's hand but you can walk out. Well, that's you snatching yourself out of Christ's hand. <laughs> You're not any better than anyone else. We say, no, the strength of Christ is this, that he holds on to his own. So if you are in his hand now, that's exactly where you will stay forever and ever, world without end. And that produces in us, if you have that assurance, an environment of secure love that changes the way you approach life relationships, local church, international events, changes everything, if you have this, what we call, Christian assurance, a certainty that Christ's love for you is secure. Can you have a bad day tomorrow? Can you sin tomorrow and still know, without any doubt, that Christ loves you to the utmost, and if you died tomorrow at the end of a bad day, you would still be in paradise forever? And might seem scandalous to say, but if you can't say that, well, you have no security whatsoever. Because who's to say whether, whether you'll have a good or bad day tomorrow? Some fear that if we say, once saved, always saved, some are going to take that as a license to sin. And you know what? Some are. Some have. Some do. But that is much better than the alternative of throwing away the concept and saying, maybe you'll get to paradise, Maybe not. And to slander the power of Christ who keeps us and to ruin the environment of secure love that we need for flourishing as Christians. It's a hard world. Is it not a hard world? Don't you need a secure love that transcends the world? You do, and I do too. And that, in fact, as we find in our text today, is the reason, among others, but it's the primary reason that the Apostle John penned the letter that we've been studying for some 27 weeks now. This letter was written to give you, if you're a believer, that kind of assurance. So let's read it here. We're in 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Those who believe in Christ. That you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Confidence, that is the one word in our text that sums up all three verses, confidence. Now as we near the end of this letter, John has waited this long to tell us why he wrote it in the first place, and it's to give you confidence. If you don't come away from 1 John as a believer with confidence, you've not read it right. <laughs> It's the point of the letter is to give you confidence. Now, we have seen, of course, the three tests that John has cycled through over and over and over again, the moral, the social, the doctrinal. You have to be righteous, live a righteous life. If you're a believer, you'll do that, not perfectly, but progressively, not completely, but characteristically. That will happen in your life. And social, you will have a love for believers. If you don't, you're just not a believer. And finally, doctrinally, you will believe in the true Christ as revealed in Scripture and not profess a heretical view of Him, of some different Jesus. So those are tests that you can take and apply to yourself. And often 1 John is treated primarily as a way to challenge someone. (laughs) Are you really a believer? Now that is a use of 1 John, no doubt. And some of you have testimonies. You came to Christ through 1 John for that reason. But notice also right here, that's a secondary reason. The primary reason this letter is written is so that once you do believe in Jesus, you can look at the tests, look at the change in your life, have a confidence in your relationship with God. Would that be nice? That would be nice. Well, that's why this letter has been written. He says it there. So what we're going to look at today is verse 13, which is the thesis of the letter, why the letter was written, that you may have confidence or security in your salvation. And then he's going to apply that in one significant area of our life now, which he takes prayer. You can have confidence in your prayer, which you will have if you have confidence in your relationship with God overall. So let's look at those two things and let's start here with verse 13. You can, and if you're reading this letter right, God wants you to be secure in your salvation. Verse 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The, these things refer back to the whole letter, everything that's been written so far. And then he puts a that And right here, the that is a statement of purpose. Why did John write these things, namely all that we've seen in 1 John? Why did he write it? There are other reasons too, but he says this is the main reason I'm writing this. That you may know that you have eternal life. And you saw last week that we possess as believers eternal life right now. It's a present possession that we have now. And it is wonderful to have eternal life, but it's not much of a benefit in the present if you don't know that you have it. So your blessing as a believer is not just that you have eternal life now, but that you can know that you have eternal life now. And you can enjoy what we call, as I've said, an assurance of salvation. Now, I've mentioned before that not every Christian agrees with the way we're teaching this right now. You would think in looking at verse 13 here that it sort of settles the question. He wants you, led by the Spirit, to know you have eternal life. So you would think, well, certainly if that's what God wants through John for you, then we should assume we can attain that goal. However, there are many who believe that an assurance of salvation, that you can this moment know for certain with no doubt that you are a believer, secure, and will experience eternal life in the life to come, that is presumptuous, that there's no way for you to do that. There are some who believe that there is a danger that if we teach that, then people will just go and sin. There's no way to check people's sin. They say, oh, once saved, always saved, and we'll go sin. And there are others who simply will say, well, I've known so many people who seem like they trusted in Christ, gave every evidence of it as far as I can tell, and then turned away and renounced Jesus Christ. So, they lost their salvation. How else do you understand that? I'll give you some modern examples. Well, first, an ancient example, not ancient, but rather old now to us. So, within Roman Catholicism, for example, it is believed to be presumptuous what we're talking about today, here is the Catholic Cardinal, Robert Bellarmine, he's been sainted and he's one of the only thirty-something doctors of the church, of the Roman Catholic Church. He wrote in 1619, quote, the principal heresy of Protestants, which is us, is that saints may obtain to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. It's our principal heresy. Uh, More recently, a Roman Catholic magazine interpreted our verse like this. St. John's assurance that you have eternal life is a proclamation of every Christian's moral, not absolute assurance of salvation. Christ offers us the gift of salvation, and He will not go back on His word, but you and I are entirely capable of going back on our word by abandoning Christ and thereby forfeiting his gift of salvation. And we're not just picking on Roman Catholicism because many Protestants agree with this understanding that you cannot have an assurance of your salvation. So does this passage we're reading now mean that God wants you to know that he's offering you eternal life and if you keep holding on to his hand, it's yours, but if you let go, you're gone? Or does this passage mean that God has already given you eternal life and He will keep you safe in that eternal life and He wants you to know it? Well, we believe the latter, but let me give you some biblical reasons why that is. Because in some sense, I suppose you could look at verse 13 and make either argument But the rest of Scripture counteracts that. Here is John chapter 10. This is the clearest passage in the New Testament that assures us that if you trust in Christ, you will never untrust in Christ. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, here's the important line, and they will never perish. I will read it again it's Jesus, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, including us. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I dare you to break the double grip. (laughs) Even you. (laughs) Going to get out of there? No. But notice in this passage... It's not just that we teach assurance of salvation because it's convenient, although it is. But what Jesus says in this passage is that in reference to his own sheep, that's his people, he says, my father who gave them to me is greater than all. There's more going on here. The father had sheep and Jesus says he gave the sheep to Jesus. Jesus has not even died on the cross yet he's going to, for the sheep. He says, I'm a good shepherd. I will lay down my life for these sheep. So it's not that somebody knew the gospel of Jesus Christ, came, repented, baptized, saved. Those are the sheep the Father gives them to the Son. He says there is a group called the sheep. The Father gives them to the Son, and then the Son goes and dies for those sheep to pardon their sins. Jesus is so bold when he's speaking with the Jewish opponents in this very chapter to say, the reason that you're not listening to me is because you're not of my sheep. There is something going on here in John chapter 10, which we call the doctrine of election, which again can be a forbidden word in some places, but it's taught here in John chapter 10, it's taught elsewhere. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul, in that passage, isn't arguing for you to believe that. He's assuming you do before the foundation of the world. The sheep are chosen by the Father. And you may have questions of, well, does that make us robots? How are, it doesn't make us robots. How does that all work? Well, putting those questions aside for just a second, it's good that it's that way. (laughs) Because Jesus says, if I have sheep given me by the Father, no one's going to snatch them out of my hand, and those sheep will never perish. How do you know a sheep? How do you know a sheep? A sheep is a genuine believer. Like we've seen throughout 1 John, there's someone who meet the three tests. They've been changed. They've looked to Christ, trusted in Him. Notice in our passage in verse 13, He wants you to have an assurance, but He's very specific. He doesn't just want everyone to have an assurance. You who believe in the name of the Son of God. So if you have genuine faith in Christ, that demonstrates you were chosen by God. You are an elect sheep of Jesus Christ. Depending on your background, If you hear a word like election, it can make you think, oh, no. Maybe you had a bad experience with people who believe election. But listen, election is a wonderful thing. God chose us, gave us to the Son. The Son dies for us. We are the sheep. Now, listen, if that's true that the Father before the foundation of the world chose us in love to believe in Christ, then when you have a bad day tomorrow, I promise you will not undo the eternal purpose of the Godhead. You will go on being a sheep of God. Jesus will continue to hold you. That's the only reason Jesus can say they will never perish. Well, Jesus, how do you know? What if they walk away? What if they leave your hand? What if they renounce the faith? They will never perish because I'm talking about my sheep. What do you do when you have someone who looks like a sheep and they walk away and vocally renounce Jesus Christ? What do you make of that? The passages in Hebrews that are challenging, you trample the blood of Christ. What is that? Well, we saw it in 1 John. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us... If they'd been a genuine sheep, they would have stayed here believing the truth about Christ. But as it is, they went out to demonstrate that they're not really of us, that they're not genuinely sheep. There may be a period of time where a genuine sheep backslides, as we call it, but it will be a period of time. And unless the Lord disciplines by taking your life, which can happen, you will in time repent. And in the meantime, there will be a misery about your life because the Spirit will be convicting you that you are not living in the way that Christ wants you to be living. Jesus, just before his agony of death in John chapter 17, prayed, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. And you can doubt your own abilities in prayer, but I promise you that Jesus' prayer that moment was heard by the Father and was answered. He will have the fulfillment of His desire in that prayer. God will not say no to that prayer. God says yes to that prayer. And the prayer is, if you are one who has been given to the Son by the Father, you will be with Christ in paradise to see His glory no exception to that in the New Testament. So when we return to our passage in verse 13, John wants you to know that you have eternal life permanently, that it's yours, you will go on having it. That provides for you this secure environment of love, to know that you are Christ's forever. Now, that does require the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to testify with your spirit that you're a child of God. We've talked about that in the past, so we won't go into that here. (coughs) Excuse me. But you can have assurance that you're saved. You can know, and you can know that you know, and you can know without any doubt. You can commit the principal heresy of Protestants, as Bellarmine said. You can know you're a believer, and if you don't, You cannot have a very high standard of Christian experience in this life. You will always be questioning whether God really loves you. So, John writes this letter to give you an assurance for you to come away believing that you have eternal life. Now, what John does next is interesting because after verse 13, talking about your assurance of salvation, he puts, what's the first word? And, in verse 14. What he says next, you would think, oh, he changed subject, now we're talking about prayer. But no, actually, he's connected it to verse 13, because if you have an assurance of salvation, that will bleed over into your day-by-day Christian life, and you will have assurance in other areas, confidence in other areas, including prayer. (coughs) Excuse me. Notice that as we go to verses 14 and 15 now. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that's God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know, there's that word again, a wonderful word, that we have the requests that we asked of Him. There is much about prayer that is a mystery, at least to me. Maybe you figured it out. I assure you, I have not. The stories that we hear sometimes of missionaries in olden days who will pray something and then be assured that their prayer has been answered for the salvation of a loved one or something like this, and then the person comes, and at that very moment, they had come to Christ. I don't know how that works, so I'm not going to dive into that. You can tell me how that works. So you may have burning questions about the specifics because what he's saying here is if you pray according to his will, you pray. He hears you. He hears you. You get it. Some have taken this, of course, to mean Lamborghinis. I mean, if you're going to pray something, believe it, you get it. And that's why he adds according to his will, as we'll see. (coughs) But I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here because even if we can't untie every complicated matter of how prayer works in specifics, the point of this passage in regard to prayer is that your prayer life should be characterized just like your whole life by confidence toward God. We saw in the previous chapter that if love is perfected with us, quote, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. That's later. And that's a wonderful thing, and we saw that. But now John is talking about not just then, but your life now as a Christian should be characterized by confidence in your relationship toward God. And of course, isn't that what naturally will overflow if you have a genuine assurance of your salvation? If you believe you are a sheep that the Father has given to the Son in love and the Son has sanctified by his own blood. If you believe that about yourself, if you are resting secure in that environment of love, then in your day-by-day interactions with God, you will come to him in prayer with confidence. A confidence that says, if I ask him for bread, he's not going to give me a rock. He's going to give me what I need. He's my heavenly father. It's a confidence right now. The confidence in its essence is, in our text, he hears us. Now, this hearing in these verses is not just he happens to know what we prayed. Because God, being omniscient, knowing all things, knows what everyone has ever prayed. In one sense, He hears everything, everywhere, all the time. So how is this unique to believers? This hearing is an active hearing. It says in our text, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests we asked of Him, meaning this kind of hearing is one that is eager to get involved To do, to respond, to hear in an active sense. So not just, you know, the walls and the ceiling hear your prayers if you pray here. They're not going to do anything for you. When God hears your prayers, He's not aloof, uninvolved. He's deeply involved in your life. So our confidence in prayer, what is it? That if we pray according to His will, we'll see that in a second. But when we pray, He hears us actively and ready to act in our lives as our Father. That's your confidence in prayer. If you pray and you believe God is a lottery in the sky and maybe you'll get what you prayed for, it's very cold. But if you pray knowing that you have a Father in heaven who knows everything about you, the hairs upon your head are numbered, and he's committed himself forever to your good and demonstrated that by the death of his own son, to this degree I'm willing to go in my love for you, for your good. If you pray in that way, how can you pray except confidently? Say, well, I'm a sinner, and how can I come confidently before God? Because of the death of his son. Because he's a father who loves you. There's a confidence before God. He will hear you. If you have a husband whose wife is assured, she is convinced that when he gets home from work, he wants to hear and know how her life is. He wants to know how the kids are doing He wants to know what happened in her day, the highs and the lows. He wants to know how she's doing personally, spiritually. And when she shares these things, historically, he listens closely. If he hears something that needs done, he's active in doing it. He asks questions to understand if that's the sort of husband she has. When he gets home, she won't be hiding in a corner, unsure if she should bring her concerns to him. She will be open and ready to talk to him about anything. This is the attitude that John wants you to have in prayer toward God. Not as if you're bothering him, not as if he's not really interested in what you have to say, not as a cross your fingers and hope you get what you're praying for, not in a double-minded way, but praying with a faith that believes that God hears you actively, personally. I don't know about you, but I'm not at all impressed with my own prayers. It's actually a difficult part of my life. In my prayers before God, I'm too aware, really, of my own imperfections. I shouldn't have prayed it that way. Maybe I should be praying for something different than I'm praying for. Or I got distracted and stopped praying, and now I feel bad about that. And on and on and on. It's enough to discourage you, to get you to stop praying, to make you think, God's not interested. Maybe now I feel like I'm just reciting something. Am I being too cold? Am I being too aloof? God doesn't care. He wants to hear your prayers, no matter what. And when you offer your prayers, not perfectly, not with an immense skill and locution, not with massive words, not in a flowery manner, just you praying to God, He, this is your confidence, He hears you actively. He wants to know what's happening. If a child of mine shares a need with imperfect words, which at this stage of their lives is always the case, I don't care. I will meet the need. In fact, God cares so much that you pray to Him actively as part of your life, even if you feel inadequate in it, that we read in Romans that the Spirit helps us in our weakness in praying. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought. <laughs> even in our text, if you ask according to His will and you go, I don't know what is His will that I'm asking. Is, is this specifically His will? The Spirit helps us. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. If you're a child of God, you can have a confidence in your prayers because God so much wants to hear from you that He's literally given you His Holy Spirit so that even when you don't know how to pray or what to pray for or what is according to His will, the Spirit is there to help you. The point of it all is you can have a confidence in prayer because God hears you and wants to hear you and loves you. And your prayer life should be characterized by that attitude. Now, I put aside according to his will to now, and this is the burning question in this text. And like I said, I don't have all the answers here. Sorry, I really don't. But he does say in verse 14, according to his will. Because the reality is, when you look at the next, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And then it tells us, if He hears us, then we will have our requests. Here's the reality. You don't get all your requests. Have you realized that? Not everything you pray for comes to pass. So that leaves you possibly in doubt as to, does God even hear me? And especially if the prayer is something you desperately need. And that seems good to you and that perhaps we'll avoid a great deal of pain if God answers, if the cancer goes away or so forth, and God doesn't answer that with a yes, then you look at a passage like this and you may say, well, does He not hear me? Did God not want to hear my prayers? Does He not care? Is He not involved? So this is a rather important question that we are asking. We know that God does want to hear us, But we also know that not every prayer we pray is answered yes, and we are told in this verse why that is. Here's the reason. Here's the one reason why you have had answers of no to your prayers, because it's not always according to God's will. There are even things that are according to God's revealed will in a general sense, like, hey, I want this person to come to Christ. God loves when people come to Christ, so I'm praying according to His will, and the person doesn't come to Christ. Now what do you do? Because there's not only God's revealed will, but there is God's hidden will, His good purposes in the whole universe that He's moving together like a great tapestry to accomplish His purposes. Let me illustrate this for you with a story. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India. She was a fiery Irish woman, single her whole life, went to India and ended up being very much used by God. Some of you probably know her very well. She went to be with the Lord by this point, but when Amy Carmichael was a little Irish girl growing up in a Christian home, she once prayed that God would change her brown eyes to be blue. And being a young child, she had so much faith in God, a childlike faith, that she believed without any doubt that when she woke up the next day, her eyes were going to be blue because she prayed. So she recounts how she went to sleep that night, woke up the next day, went to the mirror, And how much disappointment she felt that the same old brown eyes were staring back at her. She simply couldn't understand. It was just a miniature crisis of faith for her as a child. I prayed that God would change the color of my eyes. And why did God not do it? Did he not hear me? Does he not care? Well, fast forward many, many years later. And Amy Carmichael is now in India as a grown woman. And one of the things that the Lord led her to do was she began to rescue young girls out of sexual exploitation that was happening in Hindu temples, and she would cover herself to make her look darker complected, cover her head, and go in sometimes to these Hindu temples to rescue these young girls who were being exploited. If she had blue eyes, she couldn't have done it. It would have given her away. Little girl Amy Carmichael who prayed for blue eyes had no idea. I don't know if she knew what India was. She didn't know that one day the Lord willed, this was his will, that one day with her brown eyes she would be able to rescue people out of a life of evil and deliver them into light. She didn't know that. She didn't know she wasn't praying according to his hidden will because it's hidden. It's not revealed. But this is how she dealt with her unanswered prayer later in life. She wrote a poem about that experience. And the last two stanzas of her poem are this: speaking of herself. So she prayed for two blue eyes, said goodnight, went to sleep in deep content and delight, woke up early, climbed a chair by a mirror. Where, oh, where could the blue eyes be? Not there. Jesus hadn't answered. Hadn't answered her at all. Nevermore could she pray. Her eyes were brown as before. Did a little soft wind blow? Came a whisper soft and low. Jesus answered, he said. No. Isn't no an answer? Although it's difficult for us to understand in our prayers, since we don't know God's secret purposes how to pray in confidence about things He's not yet revealed, let me at least make this point to you. Do you want it to be otherwise? Would you like to be able to ruin the perfect, intricate purposes of God by Him answering yes to your prayer for some immediate desire? Please say no. No, you don't want that to happen. (laughs) God doesn't need our counsel all makes that clear. Who's his counselor? So we may have an idea, a will, of what would be best in the world. And it makes perfect sense to us. And we bring it to the Lord in prayer, as we should, because he wants to hear it. And we bring it before him. And in one sense, he always hears. But in the sense of our passage, he only hears in order to do when it's according to his will. And sometimes we don't know fully what that will is. And his answer will be no. But we know that when his answer is no, when the cancer doesn't go away, we believe. The only reason he's not answered yes is not because he's uninvolved, but because it's not according to his good, acceptable, perfect will. That he's working something better. You can't see it. I can't see it. So what? We're small. He sees it. And his will is perfect, triumphs over the wrecks of time. And we would rather get no's in answer to some of our prayers so that his perfect will may be accomplished. Don't let that... Hinder you from continuing to pray. Continue praying according to the best you know. Pray for things that are biblical. Pray for people's salvation. Pray for the cancer to go away. But when you receive an answer of no, do not allow the devil to take that answer, put it in your face and say, see, God doesn't care. The purpose of 1 John and even the purpose of these lines is to give you a confidence, an assurance that God does care. That you, if you're in Christ, you're one of His sheep. He knows them. He speaks. You follow. He cares. He lays down His life for you. His rod, His staff, He protects you. He wards off evil. He's involved closely in your life. And the confidence that we have before Him in our prayers is not that we're going to pray perfectly every time. Even Jesus was denied in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. But the confidence we have is that He hears us, He cares, and He is involved. That is the kind of confidence that God, through the Apostle John, wants you to have in your Christian walk.